Join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. As we come before God and His Word, our goal is to worship, but a result of that should always be transformation. And so consider with me how God would have us change in light of hearing His Word this morning and a simple command to love one another. In 1 Peter, we're learning what it means to live as exiles, foreigners, in a land that just isn't home for us anymore. So how are we to be different than all the unbelievers around us? What should make us stand out? In our next paragraph here in Peter's letter to the church by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we learn that a distinguishing mark of Pilgrims is their love for one another. Let's read our text this morning, which will carry over into chapter 2. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We go back to verse 22 for our big idea. And when I say that each week, what I mean is, if you're driving home and somebody says, what in the world was he talking about? Hopefully somebody can remember the, the simplest summary, uh, this idea of love. And there it is in verse 22, a command to us as God's people, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another. That is not a new concept to you. But see it freshly this morning as a command in Peter's argument to us as the church, love one another. You must love one another. It's commanded by God. You can love one another. It's enabled by God. But there's more than just our casual approach to, oh, sure, love one another. He tacks onto that as if this big idea of love needs anything else. But he says to love one another earnestly. That's for all of us who just said, oh, yeah, I'm doing pretty good at loving one another. Oh, oh, earnestly, you say. And here's a word that carries kind of two ideas. One of them is the continuation of that love. And the other is, in a sense, the intensity of it. So it, it's love that always is being demonstrated and not in a casual way. And so this 
command with the extras there, love each other earnestly and do it from the heart. We're not talking on the surface. This, this is from the inside out. Love earnestly from the heart. And we hear that command. And if we're honest with ourselves, we think of certain people and we have certain circumstances and we would ask, how is it possible to love like that? To love all the time with an intensity, no matter who that person is. How is it possible to love like that, knowing that we must and that we can? As we look through these following verses, I want to point you to four strategies for loving one another earnestly. That means all the time, whether they're lovely or not, and to do it intensely with an intentional, purposeful, zealous kind of love that comes from the heart. Four strategies to loving one another earnestly. Number one, when we ask the question, how is it possible to love like that? Peter suggests this strategy Make your loving of one another an exercise of your faith. Exercise your faith. Look at verse 22. Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, that's a long kind of phrase there that's going to describe this command to love one another. We've seen this now a couple times in Peter's letters, these, these kind of verb forms that are just telling us how to do something or by what means to do it. So the command is love one another, and we're going to do that having purified our souls by our obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. But what does all that mean? Having purified your souls... In light of this great salvation that Peter's unfolding for us with an inheritance kept in heaven, I think he's simply speaking of our conversion. This was that initial sanctification. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. So having purified your souls, and then he tells us how that happens, by your obedience to the truth. Now that's an interesting expression. We don't usually say, when somebody asks us when we became a Christian, we don't usually say, well, I became obedient to the truth when I was eight years old. And in our minds, if we're not looking at the rest of Scripture and how this phrase is used, we might think somehow our conversion happens when we do all the good things of the truth, when we obey truth. But Peter here isn't using this expression, obedience to the truth, as saying, well, here's the law, and when you keep the law, that's how you were washed. No, Peter has made it clear in the very verses before that you were washed and cleansed by the precious blood of Christ. Your righteousness is foreign to you. That was received from Christ. It wasn't your law keeping. This expression, obedience to the truth, is kind of a, a picture of the bowing the knee in submission to Jesus as Lord. You encounter the truth that Jesus is Lord and he alone can rescue you and obedience to the truth is, yes, I'm a sinner, rescue me. 
We see a similar expression in Acts 15 as the leaders of the church are talking about God's work of salvation among the Gentiles. Do they have to be circumcised to be saved? Was the question they were wrestling with. And they said in that council in Acts 15 that God made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So now we have Peter's word for cleansing, and we know it's by faith. Although Peter doesn't say faith, he says obedience to the truth. That's when we hear Romans 1.5, which speaks of salvation as the obedience of faith. So suddenly this, this act of obedience isn't works salvation, it's submission to the truth. In the strictest sense of obedience, we could say the gospel is announced to all as repent and believe. Mark says that's how Jesus came, preaching the kingdom of God. Repent and believe. Obedience of faith is doing those things. By the gift of God's grace and the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, we repent and we believe. So it's a lot of words, but Peter is basically just saying, since you've been washed, since you're a Christian, since you're believing in Jesus, since you've tasted the love of God in Christ, then love one another. But his point is, look at the last expression at the beginning of verse 22. You've been washed by the obedience to the truth, which is your faith. Look at the next word, for a sincere brotherly love. There, there's, there's some purpose behind where he's going. Having been washed and then having exercised your faith in Christ, there's a design in this salvation. It's aiming towards this brotherly love. You know that Greek word, Philadelphia. And when you think of that city, you just think of everyone loving each other, right? Well, that the philos is the love and the adelphos is the brother, so Philadelphia is just brotherly love. That's the intent that Peter is aiming at. That's the setup for this command that we've all heard before, love one another. He's just tracing it back, having been washed of your sin by God's love, and then that happening by faith in Jesus Christ, the demonstration of God's love. Know that you should be aiming towards a life of loving each other. Here's Peter's point. Your faith was designed for loving others. Having been cleansed, purified by faith in Christ for a sincere brotherly love. Since that's the purpose, love one another. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples on the night of his betrayal, John 13, says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying, listen, once you've tasted this love, once you've been washed, all of you, 
and he just gave his illustration of washing their feet. Once you've been washed, it should be demonstrated in a life of loving others. I think what's helpful to understand here is that there will be many times that your choice to love someone will rely more on faith than it does on the loveliness of the person. You exercise your faith. You intentionally choose to believe that this is the right thing to do. But sometimes we're afraid to go out on the limb and love the prickly people to love somebody who's unlovely because we're afraid we're going to get hurt. But the call of 1 Peter is, listen, having been washed of your sin by faith in Christ, this is your life, the life of loving others. Do you think it was safe for Jesus to love you? Read the beginning of John 13, knowing that he was God and that he came from God and knowing that his time had come, he loved them to the end. Loving the disciples was no easy task. Loving you for Jesus was no cheap and easy expression of a feeling. It's the fullness of divine love, self-sacrificing love. At times, you have a choice to make. You can either love by evidence that it'll all work out, it'll be reciprocated, I won't be thwarted in my efforts to show kindness, or you can love by faith, that it's the right thing to do. It's what disciples are made to do, to demonstrate the love of God. We need to stop being so pragmatic about love thinking we'll dispense love when we know it's going to work and it's going to pay its dividends and we'll reap the rewards. Jesus says that's not the way it works. The love of the disciples of Jesus Christ should stand out. It should be noticed by the world because they just seem to love so freely and so continually. They love earnestly from the heart. So start loving in faith. Because you were made for it, Peter says. Strategy number two. In answer to the question, how is it possible to love like that? Secondly, demonstrate God's love. Now we look at verse 23. Since you have been born again. That's the, the real short phrase of what we're looking at. So he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. He's arguing here. He's making his point. You have been given new life, and that new life came from a source that will never expire. It's enduring. It's abiding. It's the living and abiding word of God. And Peter then quotes Isaiah 40, which we heard read earlier for us, to highlight this contrast between the passing human life and the enduring eternal life. And in that context, the exiles promised that they would return from their captivity. Their shepherd would lead them all the way home. And even that just as a picture of our pilgrimage, that we too would be led from exile to freedom all the way home. Peter is saying this, because you have received gospel love, you must show gospel love. Love one another since 
since you have been born again. You aren't saved because God saw something good in you. You're saved because God set his love on you, Deuteronomy teaches us. In Romans 5, we read that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us as the demonstration of God's love for us. So here, Peter's arguing, saying, love one another since you have been loved. It's that simple. It's not even totally distinct from the first strategy. It's, it's calling to mind our salvation. How did God love us? And if God has loved us, then what does that look like flowing out of us? Your love for others can thrive and endure because God's love in you thrives and endures. Your love, like your human existence, can wither like the grass. Your marriage testifies to this. It only takes one rough day at work for you to come home and not demonstrate real biblical love. It only takes a little annoyance for us to shut down love and crank up self-justification and I deserve this. And It doesn't take much for our love to wither. But with divine love in us, now we can love earnestly with a continual, intense loving of others. Peter drives this home by saying, this word, this living and abiding word of God, is the good news that was preached to you. We heard that in Isaiah 40. It's not just a message about, oh yeah, grass withers and so do we, but we can be saved and live forever. It's this call to recognizing the God who saves us, who keeps us from perishing, who gives us life. Peter says the gospel is at stake. That's quite a summary to go from, listen, love one another because you've heard the gospel preached to you. So if we're going to boast in the gospel and sing of it, then we need to practice it. If we're going to sing of God's great faithfulness and love, then we should be faithful in our love to others. Now we plow on through the chapter break. Chapter 2, verse 1, begins with this word, so, or therefore. Seems to mean that this theme of love is continuing on into some kind of practical application. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The application is not hard to understand. If you are to love others, then don't be unloving toward them. If you're going to obey this command, love one another earnestly from the heart, then you're going to have to shut down all these love wreckers. Stop being selfish, Peter says. Reject all selfishness. This is a step in what it means to love one another earnestly. You could think of all the positive things, all the kindnesses, uh, all the grace to show, but there's also this negative side. Shut down these things. Put them off. You're going to go home and change your clothes. 
And that same putting off is the verb that's here. Now the picture is generally, you've been out shoveling snow, got into a snowball fight, tried to do some sledding, but in Missouri we don't get enough snow and you quickly hit the grass and the mud under it. You're muddy, you're wet, you're snowy, you're sweaty from shoveling snow and you go in and you take off those clothes with all their stains and mess and you put it aside. That's the idea here. Your love's contaminated by all these things. And, and actually, it's, it's, it's leading up to this next command. So he's saying, having put off all these things, get busy with longing for the word. But I don't want us to miss this intentional putting away, this rejection, this clear recognition, this is dirty, this, is, this isn't going to work. I can't go in from shoveling snow and sit on the couch with these clothes on. And in the same way, Peter is saying, you, you can't go about loving each other if these things are a part of your heart still. Peter offers a sampling of these things that can wreck our love for others. Malice. We don't use the word much. It simply means a desire for another's demise or failure. Love says, I will serve you and make you successful in God's eyes. Not watch your failure. Christ didn't sit back and watch us perish in our sins. He intervened. He served us and made us successful, we could say, in God's eyes. So that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's Christ's work on our behalf. That's the opposite of malice. It's, it's the loving goodwill. So you're going to have to put away malice. You're going to have to stop being bothered when someone else is recognized. You're going to have to stop being upset when someone else gets credit for something you had a part in. You're going to have to stop you know, being jealous of people and their wealth, their relationships, their status, whatever it is. That's malice that says, I'm glad that they were just knocked back a little bit. Deceit and hypocrisy. Deceit is this attempt, this attempt to mislead. Hypocrisy is masking our true motives. Both of them kind of connected with this untruthfulness. Peter says that has to go. You have to do away with both of these because they undermine the trust that supports a loving relationship. Love one another. And with that sincerity that he's already mentioned, that means I, I, I can't put on the mask. I can't hide what's in my heart, and I can't mislead others. Envy, a displeasure over another's good fortune, whereas love rejoices with those who rejoice. Slander, speaking evil of someone when love would seek to build them up. That would include casual conversations, our sarcasm and our jokes, the mentioning publicly things that just have no bearing on the conversation, offers no help to that person. Even in your praying for people, you should be careful to, to view their need scripturally and, and not just judge and slander. That's the task of the devil. It's even a nickname of his. He's the accuser of the brethren. 
whereas Christ is our advocate. He always rises up. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He's not continually saving us in the sense of a fresh act of salvation, but he is perpetually speaking up and saying, my blood avails for them. So our love for others cannot in any way be slandering or accusing. I'm not saying we never confront sin and those things, but in our hearts, are we loving or are we glad when someone else isn't as good as people think they are? Maybe that'll help me look better. Peter says, put it all away, all of it. And he says it with the so. Because you're supposed to love each other, having experienced what the gospel is, the conclusion is, be done with all of this stuff that just keeps on wrecking your relationships. You'd better ask the Holy Spirit to help you identify what keeps causing you to have conflict in the marriage. That's not God's plan. It's not his design. So what is causing that? There's something there that needs to be put away. It's wrecking love. And Peter's strategy is you got to figure out these love wreckers and get rid of them. It's all selfishness. So refuse to love self. Refuse to disobey the second great commandment, to love your neighbor. Refuse to disobey Philippians 2, esteem others' needs as more important than your own. The biggest hurdle to you loving others this week is not others. But that's the way we usually couch our tensions and conflicts. Well, if they hadn't, well, if my kids would just, if my parents weren't inconsistent, if my boss would recognize, if they didn't cut me off, if we have all the others kind of problems, it's their fault. But Peter's commanding you to do something. He's saying, this is your task. Your biggest hurdle to loving others is not others, it's you. You love yourself and you get angry when people encroach on your downtime, on your, on your rest. That's why I run up the stairs angrily when my children were young and got out of bed or kept calling when I told them not to. I wasn't angry that they were disobeying authority and, and rebel. I was angry because they encroached on my time. I want to relax. It was a me problem. Anger wasn't because of them. It was because of me. I love me. And that messes a lot of things up. Don't be surprised when this command to love others calls for self-sacrifice. Because that putting away, It's all good and right. You're putting away malice. You're putting away envy. and You're putting away bad things. But what you're really putting away is a love of self. Because all of these things serve me. They make me look good. They bow down to me. And I'm this master and idol. And all of that malice and slander and envy, all of that cuts at others and makes me look good. So I'm actually putting away sin and vices, but I'm putting away self. 
I'm dying to self. It's why we see this in marriage and parenting and those closest of relationships, even the workplace where all the time you're together. It's because that's where it's revealed. We just get tired of faking it then and the real self comes out. Peter says, that's the self to deal with. Put it away. Sacrifice self in order to love as we've been loved. So exercise your faith. Demonstrate God's love. Reject all selfishness. And the fourth strategy, nourish your soul. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Long for the milk. Now, we've got a few newborns. I don't know if they're in here or in one of the rooms out back there. Not like out in the shed. I don't mean out back. I mean out back like in the lobby uh, or in the nursery. Newborn babes, they, they have a very small little radar screen, right? And it, it's kind of anchored in the stomach. They just, you know, just, just feed me. Just, just, that's what I need. And they squawk and we feed and it works out well. They grow. So Peter takes that kind of, almost this singular kind of focus. It's, it's not that babies are wrong for not noticing what's going around in their world and recognizing everybody and engaging with them. It's just they, they have, by God's design, a kind of singular focus. They, they need to put on some pounds. So much so that, you know, that failure to thrive is like this label that we put on a child who isn't quickly just singularly focusing on milk and growth because that is the complete expectation. That's all we're asking of them. They don't need to do household chores. They don't need to carry any weight relationally. They they just sit there and we look at them and love them and feed them. Like a newborn babe desires milk, since we understand that, now let's apply that to our spiritual nourishment. Like those newborn infants, now you is the subject, you long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. What does spiritual milk mean? And why are some of you looking at words that say the pure milk of the word? Well, spiritual and word, those are our two options here we're looking at in translations. They they come from one word in the text that is a word that's used over in Romans 12.1, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, what? Reasonable service. Or some translations say spiritual service. Why it's spiritual or reasonable? Because the word is logikos, which sounds like logical. Its root of that word is logos, word. So we have Word at the core. Now, is that words of logic and reason, which is your logical, reasonable service, or is it 
the word of God, spiritual word, your spiritual service. That's the debate in the translation in Romans 12. Here in 1 Peter, we're trying to get spiritual or spiritual milk or milk of the word. And it's not really either or. We're even closer to logos in this text than we are in the Romans 12 passage. Because at the heart of this description of milk is at the heart, at the core, logos, word. Well, this is why I wanted to plow through the chapter division and not start chapter two with the new message next week. Because the great emphasis in that last paragraph, other than love one another, is because of the word. The word has washed you, verse 22. And then following on in verse 23, by this word you were born again. This is because your new life came from the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And this word preached to you is the gospel. So desire that word. It's milk to you. It's how you grow. So whether your Bible says spiritual milk, that's legitimate. Or whether it says milk of the word, I actually think that's more consistent with the context if you're translating because it's about the word. We have come to faith by the hearing of the word. It's that word that's going to help us keep growing. It's the word that will nourish our souls. It's the word that we must be in nourishing our souls if we are going to love others as we ought. So whether your text says spiritual milk or milk of the word, we know this. Both the word and spiritual are driving us to a standard. That standard is God's truth, God's word. So like infants desire milk to grow and not be labeled with failure to thrive, then you as Christians desire the word, lest you be labeled as suffering and failing to thrive, that you may grow up into salvation. Now, does that make you stop and think a minute? We're to desire the word so that we will grow up into salvation. What does that mean? Like, are we growing and hopefully we're going to make it to salvation? Well, we should know better than that. We should know that repentance and faith you have the gift of eternal life. So this growing up in salvation, I think is similar to what we hear Paul telling the Philippians, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. It's not finish it, Christ did a good work and now you need to do good things. No, it's all of Christ. So you receive righteousness and forgiveness of sins. You're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But if you have truly been saved, then I think it's going to be evident in your growth, as Peter says here, in the fruit, Jesus would say elsewhere, or in your maturity. I think Peter's point is this, in order to be able to love others, you must sustain your spiritual growth with God's word. You have to have fuel in the tank. You've got to be coming to the word and seeing again and again the character of God and loving us and what the life of discipleship, loving others, looks like. 
because we need to keep seeing it lest self comes back into control and into power and says, you know what, I'm going to take care of me instead of taking care of others. We've got to nourish our own souls as a strategy for loving others. Do you know how far you can drive when your low fuel light comes on? Do you panic and rush to the nearest gas station? I don't know. I always look in my little manual. Of course, some used cars, you didn't get your manual. Uh, it tells you when the light comes on, you've got this many gallons left. And you should roughly know how many gallons to the mile. So you, some of you say, I got a long way to go. I got a couple days yet. And some of your spouses are laughing right now. Like, yeah, that's exactly what they do. You got to have fuel in the tank. If you're going to travel in loving others, you've got to have fuel in the tank. Nourish your soul by coming back to the word. Remember verse 25 of the previous chapter, which is the gospel that was preached to you. In other words, remember how God has loved you so that you can keep loving others. Now look at the last phrase of this paragraph in verse 3. Desire the word that you may grow up in this salvation that's yours already, we could say, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is a quote from Psalm 34. You could read that this week. But it's interesting that Peter seems to kind of twist the metaphor a little bit. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He didn't say, long for the milk of the word, if indeed you have tasted that milk. He, he kind of just jumps a little bit in the thinking. So yes, you, you've, you've tasted the milk of the word, long for that. Long for the milk of the word, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. I think that the Lord is good is Peter's summary of really all of chapter 1. He's made this argument that you're elect exiles. That by God's great mercy, you've been born again. That yours is the hope of resurrection. And not only resurrection, but an inheritance. And yours is the certainty that not only is your inheritance kept, but you are kept for that inheritance. That this is the salvation that you have. And even though you might suffer a little while, you will be greatly rewarded when Christ returns and he will. So verse 10 through 12, marvel at so great a salvation. That Christ suffered for you, that the prophets predicted this for you, that they were speaking of the good news that would come to you. Marvel that God has set you apart and made you holy. So as obedient children, live in that holiness, bask in it, knowing that you were rescued, ransomed, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And if all that's true, love one another and keep loving one another. And when you start running low on wanting to love one another, nourish your souls in the word if indeed you have tasted this kind of goodness of God in doing all this for you. He's just recapping all of this argument about if you have become a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, if you've tasted God's mercy and salvation, 
then live a holy life and love one another. And don't let anything wreck that love. Keep on loving and keep on reminding yourself of God's love for you. If you've tasted that love, you can love others. Peter's point, I think he would say, is desire both the word of God and the God of the word. Long for the milk of the word and taste the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good in his mercy to save sinners through Jesus Christ. Taste that. Drink of that. The prophet would say, why are you drinking gutter water out of a broken cistern that's collected all the scum running down the street when you could be drinking from the water of life, this pure fountain. Come and drink, come and eat, come and buy without having any money of your own. Come and taste how good God is in saving you. Because if you've tasted that, you'll have a pretty good strategy for how you should go about loving others. It's a unique command. Frankly, we better understand the command to read your Bible and to remember your great salvation. But what of this command to long for? I could tell you, hey, listen, we're going to have Brussels sprouts and red beans and rice for lunch today. I want you to long for that. There might be one of you from the mountains of Tennessee or somewhere that would say, yeah, I can do that. I can obey that. I can long for that. The rest of you are like, if you told me to eat it, I could obey that command. But how, how do you obey a command to, to really want? That, that almost seems like counterintuitive. How do you command? It's like commanding somebody to love someone and marry them. Well, you could argue biblical love is a choice, but you know, in, in the idea of making someone really want something seems like an odd command. At the very least, it begs the question, what if you right now in your heart are thinking, what if I don't long for the word? What if, what if that's not my intense desire? One, we could wrestle with have you tasted? That, that's why there's that odd dash at the end of verse 2, and it goes into verse 3, like, if you've tasted, the Lord is good. But let's assume that you have, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but there's some kind of cloud, circumstance, a struggle of faith, whatever it is, and you don't desire the word right now. What do you do? My advice to you is this. Number one, then obey the command to read your Bible and remember Christ's work of salvation. Start with the starkness of the facts. This is what Christ has done for me, and I'm going to just make myself press into the reading the word. I know the command is long for, but we're trying to figure out what to do if that's not working right now. Then I say, get in the word, Taste it and then taste Christ. See him. So that's step one. Just do it. Step two, pray for desire. 
Read the Psalms and, and see when, when that desire waned and how they longed for it to return. Pray that God would restore to you the joy of your salvation so that as you read 1 Peter, you get fired up at thinking of the love of God in Christ for sinners. Pray in faith, believing that some other desires may need to be sacrificed to make room for this desire for the word. Because sometimes I think we fail to account for what's really on the throne of the heart. Who's calling the shots? What is it that I really want? And at times we say things like, I just don't feel like getting into the word, but it's because some other desires are running roughshod over our time and energy. So pray in faith that you would long for the word and that you would desire to taste Christ. But ready yourself for some purging when God says, well, if that desire is going to flourish in your heart, these desires are going to have to go. And now you have a choice to make, a choice of worship. Love each other earnestly. I know you have your objections. That person's unreasonable. Somebody's ungrateful. They don't understand my struggles. They've overlooked my strengths. Peter's response would be something like this. I know what you mean. It's not always easy. People always or aren't always real lovable. So draw on something deeper than feelings. Exercise your faith. Demonstrate God's love. Refuse all selfishness and nourish your own soul. Heavenly Father, help us to love as you have loved us through Jesus Christ, in whose name we trust and pray. Amen.